Well, as a church, we've had a great privilege to travel through many books of the Bible together. Uh, in our five-year history, uh, we have traveled through the Gospel of John, 1 Timothy, Ephesians, Acts, Philippians, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Nehemiah, Judges, Ruth, Jonah, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Um, we now have the great privilege to continue on this trajectory uh, and begin looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark. If, if you have not picked up on this yet, uh, we here at Gospel Community Church highly value God's Word. Uh, we see it as our highest authority. Uh, we see it as uh, what we must submit ourselves to and under. And so here at Gospel Community Church, we endeavor to preach exegetically. It's a big fancy word. Get to impress your friends with it. Now, when we say exegetically, what we mean is, what that word means is to lead out from. And so here's the thing. We're not coming up with an idea and then going to the scriptures to then back up that idea. Here's what we're doing. We are leading out from the scriptures, meaning this. We go to the word of God, we see what it says, and then we endeavor just to say that, okay? So that's what we mean when we say we, we preach exegetically through books of the Bible. It means we go to God's word and lead out from that. And there's, there's many, many reasons why we do that. We, we do that, we preach through books of the Bible as a church because, listen, we want to see and savor Christ. When, when Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders, he, he says to them, you, you search the scriptures for eternal life. But listen, those scriptures are about me. That, that's what Jesus is, is telling to the Jewish leaders. He, he's explaining to them that this book, this, this word is about him. It's about Jesus. So whether you're in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, 1st, 2nd Samuel, um, all the way through the Old Testament on into the New Testament, the Bible is about Jesus. And so as we preach through books of the Bible, we endeavor to see a picture of Christ, to learn more about him, uh, not only to just see the picture, but to savor that picture of of who he is. We want to see and savor Christ as we preach through books of the Bible. And, and here's why we want to see and savor Christ. Are you guys still with me? Yeah. We want to see and savor Christ because he is our source of hope. He, he is our source of meaning. He, he is where we get our purpose. And so you can look for hope and meaning and purpose in your job. You can look for it in your accomplishments. Uh, you, you can try to find peace in, in alcohol, drugs, and sex. You can try to find um, your, uh, your uh, hope and peace in what you can build and create. But listen, friends, it is simply not there. It is in Christ and Christ alone. And so if you're here this morning and you're looking for joy, anybody looking for joy this morning? Anybody need encouragement? encouragement this morning? Well, well, me too, okay? And so that's why we preach through books of the Bible, because we want to see and savor Christ, and Christ is where we get our joy, our hope, our meaning, and our encouragement. We preach through books of the Bible because, listen, I don't have anything better to say. I'm not that smart, okay? I, I might have fooled some of you, but I'm really not that smart, and I'm not that creative, and so the best thing that we can do is go to the source of truth and wisdom and just say what that says. And, and listen, let me just say this. The smartest guy or the smartest gal or the most creative guy, the most creative gal, still doesn't have anything better to say than what the Word of God says. And so 
while we do topical series um, here and there, uh, as a matter of fact, we just did one about the next five-year vision of the church, and, and so we, we do topical series where we'll pause and talk about uh, you know, ways to improve your marriage and, and things like that. We, we do that, but what we seek to do, our, our pursuit here, what we think the wisest thing for us to do is just simply preach through books of the Bible, okay? We, we preach through them because um, the Bible, again, is, it is sufficient, okay? It's, it's sufficient for all you need to know to be saved and all you need to live the Christian life, right? It's sufficient. It's right there. All you need to know to be saved and all you need to live the Christian life is right here. So the Bible is sufficient. Not only is it sufficient, but the Bible is authoritative in the sense that when I'm asking, how do I then live my life? Where do I go? What do I say? How do I live? What, what job do I take? What worldview should I have? How do I view the world around me? Well, all of that information is coming from here, from God's word, because it is the ultimate authority over my life. And so for those reasons, and I could go on and on and on, I've got a bunch of these reasons why we preach through books of the Bible. Again, it, it creates the best spiritual, uh, the best environment for spiritual growth. I, I believe that as we travel through this together, everyone is on the same page, going in the same direction. It creates a conversation and facilitates that type of spiritual growth in our church. But that's just, that's another reason that you get for free. Um, and, and, and I've got lots of other reasons why we do that. But we preach through books of the Bible uh, because this is God's very word, amen? It's, it's, it's God's word. Like, God is speaking. He's, he's talking and communicating to his people, and so if it's here in his word, why wouldn't we just read it and talk about it and, and express what God is trying to communicate to his people, okay? So, so we preach through books of the Bible um, for that reason and for for many others. Okay, so uh, today we're going to begin our journey through uh, Mark. Um, although we're not actually getting to the text we read today, uh, what we're going to do um, is essentially an introduction to the Gospel of Mark. Okay, so, so we're doing an introduction to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, today is essentially an info dump. Um, so I hope that uh, you had lots of coffee. Uh, I hope you had your thinking cap on this morning. I, I hope you're ready to get up and go uh, because we have a lot of information to cover. And listen, I get it. What we're doing today is essentially setting the table. Okay, so, so we might not actually serve up any food today, uh, but we're setting the table um, for next week so that when we come to um, the very beginning, uh, the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when we get to that first verse, the table has been set and, and we're ready to consume God's word. Okay, so, so that's the plan today. Info dump. So, so you're going to have to stay tuned in, keyed in. You're, you're going to have to have your thinking cap on as, as we just set this up. And then next week, we'll actually get into the verse-by-verse -verse exposition. Is that okay? Can we do that? All right. So today we begin looking at the gospel account of Mark. Let's, let's begin by asking this very simple question. What are the gospel accounts? Okay. What are the gospel accounts? Your, your Bible is broken up into two large sections made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament. As you get into the New Testament, what you find is these types of literature. Uh, you find the gospel narratives, the gospel accounts. You find the epistles, okay? And you also find 
um, what, what could be referred to as apocalyptic literature, that would be the book of Revelation. So you have in, the New, in your New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, and the book of Revelation are apocalyptic literature. So what we have in Mark is a gospel account. So number one, the gospel accounts are not an attempt to get a chronologically balanced biography of the life of Jesus. So I'm going to give you two things the Gospels are not and two things that the Gospels are. So let's begin looking at this first one. The Gospel accounts are not an attempt to give a chronologically balanced biography of the life of Jesus. Here's what you need to know about the Gospels. There are entire sections of the life of Jesus that are just missing. Doesn't talk about them. Okay? We, we see his miraculous birth. Uh, there's the wise men, right? They, they show up. Uh, he's got to go to Egypt for a little while. We, we see another picture of him. He's 12 years old in the temple. He's conversing with, uh, with, with the priests there in the temple. They're astonished and amazed. And from 12 years old to 30, when he shows up on the scene, we got nothing. Okay, now, you can go watch Discovery Channel, uh, you know, biographies all you like, okay? Uh, but listen, they're speculating because they have no idea because there is no written record, okay? So, uh, you know, did he, you know, there, myths abound, okay? I, I don't need to get into all of them, uh, you know, traveling to the United States and, you know, meeting with aliens and, and whatever, okay? The myths are out there, but the truth is, the Gospels are not seeking to give a balanced biography. They're, they have an aim, they have a focus, they wanna talk about his life, his death, his burial, and significantly, his resurrection. And so there are large sections of Jesus's life that are skipped over. In addition, there are large sections of his life that are just packed into a sentence or two, meaning, and he grew in wisdom and stature. Okay, well, what does that mean? Like, like what, I mean, how, what was Jesus like in his 20s? I mean, I know what I was like in my 20s, okay? And, and we know Jesus was not like that at all. Um, but, but what, I mean, what, what was he like? How does that, well, we don't know. And that is not the gospel's aim and intent is to give us a balanced biography. Again, it wants to focus on the life, death, burial, and resurrection, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, so it's not seeking to do that. In the accounts, what we see is a third to a quarter of the Gospels focus on just the last week of his life. They're, they're focusing on just the last week of his life. And so if you're thinking about biographies and, and things like that, think about a guy like Winston Churchill. I mean, if, if you're writing a biography on Churchill, you're going to focus on 1940 to 1945, right? The World War II, you're, because he played such a significant role, and you're going to devote a ton of that um, to World War II when he was playing those significant roles. In the same way, the, the significant thing that Jesus Christ does is he comes to live the life we could not live. Jesus then dies the death that we should have died in our place for our sins, and by faith on him, we can be saved. That's, that's the story of the gospel, and so the gospels focus on that. Okay? No, they don't talk a lot about his childhood. They're talking about his, his ministry, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Number two, they are not meant, or they are not an attempt to give a full rendering of the exact sayings and actions of Jesus down to the last detail. Okay? Now, just you have to go with me here. Listen. If you look at the parable of the sower in Mark and the parable of the sower in Matthew, they are not word for word exactly the same. Now listen, 
The truth and the concept is there word for word, okay? I make this point because we cannot come to the gospels imposing on them what they're not trying to do and say. So though in the account of the parable of the sower in Mark and the account of the parable of the sower in Matthew, okay, they're not exactly the same word for word, that doesn't make it any less true and infallible. Let me give you an example. Let's say I said, hey, everyone, I'm going to the gas station to get something to drink. Do you need anything? Okay, that's what I say. I said that, okay? Hey, guys, I'm going to the gas station to get something to drink. Do you need anything? Someone then comes and asks, hey, what did Kirk just say? The person responds, he said he's going to the store and wanted to know if we needed anything. Would that response be true? All right, this is not a trick question. Some of you guys are mm, I'm not answering that. <laughs> Sounds fishy to me, I'm not answering that one. The, yes, that would, be, that would be true. I said, I'm going to the gas station to get something to drink. Do y'all need anything? What did Kirk say? Kirk said he's going to the store, wanted to know if you wanted anything. Now, it would be a, a silly person, and if you are this person, repent. It, it would be a silly person <laughs> that would come and say, oh, no, 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 you are a liar, sir. What Kirk said was he was going to the gas station and you said store. In addition, he said he was going to get something to drink, which you omitted. Therefore, you're a liar. Okay? Now, if you are that person, repent. So what is happening in the Gospels is there is a degree of accuracy that is assumed. Okay? They're not assuming uh, to, to give a court transcripted down to the last very detail. They're, they're telling a story from their perspective. Now, because they're telling a story from their perspective, it doesn't mean that it's any less true or that it's any less reliable or that it's any less inspired God's word. It just means they're telling stories from their perspectives. We can trust them. They're true, reliable, but they're not trying to get down to the bottom, you know, very last infinite finite detail. Okay, again, just another example so we're all on the same page. If I said, I live four miles away from the church, okay, that is a true statement. Um, you can, you know, Google it, whatever. I live four miles away from the church. Now, it would be a silly person who would say, oh, no, 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 Pastor Kirk, you are a liar. You live 4.1 miles, 150 feet, and 36 inches door to door, give or take a millimeter, right? That, that would be this heightened degree of accuracy that no one is assuming. So, we understand here in the Gospels, there's an understood degree of accuracy that allows us to trust this information without it having to give every last bit of information down to the very last detail. So again, the Gospel accounts are not an attempt to give a chronologically balanced biography of the life of Jesus. Number two, they are not an attempt to give a full rendering of the exact sayings and actions of Jesus down to the last detail. So what are they? Okay, that's what they're not. What are they? Now, if you have a good translation of the Bible, if you go to the very front of it, it will say the gospel according to Mark. So we often say the gospel of Mark, but really it's the gospel of Jesus. Uh, because if you know the life of Mark, which we're going to get to in just a minute, um, his life isn't very much good news. Okay, the, the life of Jesus is good news. And so it's really uh, the gospel according to to Mark, and so in the first and second century, this book was entitled the Euangelion Kata Markon. Okay, that's Greek. That's the only Greek I know. Um, I'm not that smart again, and I practice all week to say that, so I would, so I'd say it right. 
But what that means, again, it's the euangelion, kata markon. That is, euangelion is where we get our word gospel, kata meaning according to or from, markon, mark. So it's the gospel according to mark. And so what is it? What are these gospels? Well, number three, the four gospel accounts are written record of God's redemptive history. The four gospel accounts are the written record, okay, of God's redemptive history. From from Genesis to Revelation, God is doing something. He's on the way. He's he's moving towards redeeming all of history. See, in the garden uh, is where we sinned and where uh, creation and humanity was fractured and broken. Our relationship, we were separated from God. He is holy. We are sinful. There was a great divide, yet God loved us. He he loved us so much, he decided, I'm going to chase after these people because they're my people. And all of the Old Testament scriptures on to the New Testament scriptures became God's redemptive history. He's telling this story about chasing the ones that he loves. Guys, look, if, if you're in here this morning and, and there is this feeling in your soul that you're alone, that you're not loved, that no one cares about you, Listen, that couldn't be further from the truth because it is God who has orchestrated all of human history to chase after you because he loves you. He loves you so much. He was willing to sacrifice his son. He he gave his son for you so that you could be reunited back to him so that he could redeem you and bring you into his family. And so you're not alone. You're, if you're a Christian, you're a part of the family of God. You're not alone. You're not unloved. And so what we have in these four gospel accounts is the climax. It's the, it's the climax of God's redemptive history. It's the, it's the climax of the story as, as he's on his way to save his people, to, to gather his children together. And Jesus Christ comes on the scene to do that great work. And then as the gospels end, the epistles roll on and it tells of the redeeming work of Jesus as the church was planted and founded and as it expanded and grew and moved out of Jerusalem on throughout all of the Roman Empire and throughout the ends of the world. And this story, this redemptive history uh, culminates that the very end of all of it shows and pictures that the children of God gathered around the throne when the returning king comes back to finally and fully and completely set all things right and we're there together with him in a real place called heaven forever. Amen? And so that's, that's the end of this redemptive history. And, and so what we have here in the four gospel accounts uh, is the written record of God's redemptive history. Number four, the Gospels are four independent and cohesive portraits of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So like I said, these, these are all about the redemptive history, uh, God laying out his plan of salvation for his people, and the method in which he saves us is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that is how he saves us. We, we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, all found in the scriptures alone, 
okay? So, so this is all a part of God's redemptive history to save us, and the method is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and what we have here is independent and cohesive portraits of a picture of Christ. Here's what I mean. They're independent in this. Um, Mark was not trying to do the same thing that Matthew was trying to do as they wrote their gospel accounts. Luke was not trying to do the same thing John was doing. John wasn't trying to do the same thing Mark was doing. They are independent in that the Holy Spirit independently used these men, inspired these men to write down these scriptures, and they're not exactly the same because they have different means and ends. So while Matthew is seeking to appeal to a predominantly Jewish audience, that's why he gives this massive genealogy at the beginning of his gospel because he's trying to appeal to a Jewish audience and let them know Jesus really is the Messiah, and we can know that because of his genealogy, because of his lineage while Mark doesn't do that at all, right? We're, it, it opens up, I mean, and we're, boom, we're, we're faced with the full-grown adult Jesus right there before John the Baptist. Again, no shepherds, no, no birth account. I mean, none of that is in Mark because Mark is writing to uh, the church in Rome, this, this predominantly pagan, this predominantly Gentile church. He's, he's communicating to them uh, about a king who is a suffering servant. He, he's not trying to convince them uh, that he's the Jewish Messiah, so, so he, he's coming at it from a very different way. Luke came at it from a very different way, and John did as well. I mean, John opens up with this massive theological treatise about the Word and, and the Word becoming flesh. And, and so they're independent in the sense that they're not copying one another. They're, they're coming at it from different angles, uh, with different perspectives, and with different aims. Not only are they independent, but they are also cohesive. These four accounts are cohesive in the sense that they do not contradict one another, ever, okay? Now, they're cohesive in the sense that when you look at the portraits, these four independent portraits, again, just just imagine uh, a painter's gallery in your mind. And and what we have is uh, Mark has painted this portrait of Jesus. Um, Matthew has painted this portrait. Luke has painted this portrait. John, each of them have painted this portrait. They've, they've used different aspect ratios. They, they've used different colors. Uh, they, they've used different themes. So they're independent, yet they're cohesive because there's no question at all that all four paintings are of the one Christ. So they're independent and they are cohesive in the sense that when you look at the four portraits, there's no question that they are all of the one Jesus. So, these four great accounts that we find in our New Testament Bible, they are about God's redemptive history to save his people, and they are independent and cohesive stories, historical fact about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we have in the four Gospels, okay? That's what the Gospels are. Now, let's ask this interesting question as we continue on setting the table. Can we trust them? Now, um, I I was raised in the church, have been around the church, and this is a question that as as I grew up, um, as I lived and breathed in the church world, this question was assumed. The assumed answer was yes. Yes, they are historically accurate, reliable, and you can trust them. And even to ask this question was a 
bit of a no-no. You, you weren't allowed to ask this type of question, and those people who did ask this type of question were the troublemakers, right? And you, know, and you, you would have to sit in the back of the youth group. You, know, you were patted on the head, you were told to have a little more faith and go sit in the back. But, but friends, God never asks us to check our brains at the door when we enter into the church. Jesus, the, the God of the Bible, never says, all right, we're opening up the Bible now. Now take your brains out, put them under your seat, um, and, and let us open up the Bible together. That, that is never what God asks us to do. While we are asked to have faith, it is never blind faith. While we are asked to believe on Jesus Christ, it, it is not an unfounded or ungrounded belief in reason, logic, and historical fact. Those are not the enemy of the church, reason, logic, and historical fact. Those are not the enemy of the church. Rather, if you are a good historian, they are a friend of the church. If, if you understand philosophy, if you understand truth and reason, these are friends of the church. They are friends of the Bible, not enemies. So, can we trust these four accounts as historical fact? Well, of course, the answer is yes. Number one, we can trust them because they are eyewitness accounts. Listen, there are some 2.2, um, uh, what is it, billion, yes, 2.2, that's billion with a B, 2.2 billion Christians on the planet. Many Christians that, that we know of have gone into jungles to, to uh, share this great gospel with tribes that have eventually killed them. Uh, people give their lives away to Jesus in service to him. And pe people give money to the church. And all of it is based on these four gospel accounts. So, so can we trust them? Yes, we can trust them. Why? Because they were written by eyewitness accounts. Matthew, his gospel account is right there because he was there to see the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He was there to write it down as he saw it, as he experienced. That's where we get that account. We know that Mark um, essentially walked with and spent time with Peter. And so what Mark is writing down, what we have here in the gospel of Mark is Peter's eyewitness account. What we see in Luke is Luke was a medical doctor, okay? And what he did is he interviewed people who had seen the life of Christ and he was also under the apostolic authority of the apostle Paul as he writes his eyewitness account. And what we have in John, obviously, John was one of the closest disciples to Jesus and we have his eyewitness account. So can we trust them? Absolutely, because they were there to see it happen. In addition, number two, we can trust them because they were written and circulated during the lifetime of the people who were eyewitnesses. Why is that significant? Because it allows these four gospel accounts to come under scrutiny. So in, uh, in Mark, he, you know, he gives the account of the feeding of the 5,000. He writes that down in his gospel account and it gets circulated. Maybe somebody's, you know, what? I was on that hill that day with the 5,000. He, he never broke any bread. He never gave us any fish. We all went home hungry. And if that were the case, what happens to this burgeoning Christian religion? It disappears. It gets discounted. If, if, if the guy who had the withered hand that Jesus healed Okay, purportedly in the Gospel of Mark, if he still has the withered hand, guess what? Nobody's gonna believe the Gospel accounts. 
but because they did get fed on that hillside that day when the 5,000 had gathered, because the man's hand was changed, because people's lives really were changed, and it was true and verifiable. Not only was it written by eyewitnesses, but it was verified by other eyewitnesses. The, the Christian religion, again, exploded out of Jerusalem, all throughout the Roman Empire, and all throughout the entire world, because it's true. So people who saw the ministry of Jesus were alive to confirm or deny the accuracy of these accounts. If they had denied it, Christianity would have died. It would have fizzled out at the beginning of the first century in Palestine. Number three, we can trust them because of the way they are written. They are honest and historical. Okay? We can trust them because of the way they are written. If you are making up a gospel account and you are giving your eyewitness testimony of it, if you're just making it up, okay, just, I think I'll write a gospel account today. It'll be great, right? You just, you decide to sit down and do that. You would probably paint yourself not in the light that the eyewitness people are painted in. I'm, I'm going to read. Uh, here is Mark chapter 8. I'm jumping to 14. It's not going to come up on the screen. I'm just going to read it. If you want to turn there, you can. Mark chapter 8, verse 14. Here, Jesus is talking with the disciples. They're, they're uh, spending time together. Now, they, that is disciples, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, this is Jesus, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they begin discussing whether uh, whether one another uh, had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Okay. If I'm writing this account, I'm, okay, so there we were in the boat. We only had one loaf. And then I spoke up and said, Jesus, I know you've got this covered. That's not what's here in the account. Let's keep reading. Jesus turns to them and says, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes you do not see and having ears you do not hear and you do not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? The disciples said to him, I'm imagining in a very sheepish uh, voice, 12, right? <laughs> They said to him, 12, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Now, if you don't know this, Jesus not only fed 5,000 one day, but there was another day when he fed 4,000 and the disciples were there to see them both. And yet they're in the boat wondering where they're going to get bread. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's incredible. And, and from the seven, uh, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? All throughout these gospel accounts, the disciples turn out to be morons. They just don't get it. They can't get it together. And listen, if, if you think that you're different than them, you're not, and neither am I. We, we need the empowering power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we can see who Jesus really is. They couldn't see it. And so they're not painted in this really good light. And so if, if, you're, if you're thinking, man, how can we trust this? How can we know it's true? Look at the way it's written. 
If you're just making it up, you're going to make yourself look a whole lot better than what the disciples look like in this book. In addition, we can trust them because uh, the way it's written, they are honest and it's historical. Okay? The way that this is written is not meant to be a fable. Okay? If, if, if you know anything about literature, you, you're looking at works like uh, the Iliad or the Odyssey or, uh, okay, here you go, nerds, the Lord of the Rings. Okay? Amen in Jesus' name. Now, if you're reading those if you're reading those accounts or reading those tales, they're written in a very different way than how this is written, okay? The disciples don't go uh, to Mount Mordor to slay the evil dragon of Sauron, okay? Nerds, anybody? Okay, okay, nobody got that. All right, they're, they're not doing that. They're, they're not, um, the disciples are not in some type of mythical land. The disciples, and, and what you see happening is these are real places. Like you can get on a plane, fly over there, and walk down the same roads. These are real places. In addition, these are real historical figures that are written outside of, they're written about outside of the New Testament accounts, okay? So, so these are real historical figures. These are real historical places. And so we can trust them to be reliable because of the way they're written, okay? Now, number four, we can trust them because by writing these accounts, they gained nothing, and it cost them everything. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not become millionaires. They did not live in big houses. They didn't get fancy clothes. They didn't even really become that popular on the world stage while they were alive. Here's what happened to them. Uh, they were outcasts, they were destitute, they were persecuted, they were beaten, they were hated, they were mocked, they were targeted, their friends and family disowned them, people refused to do business with them, and they were killed in terrible ways because of what they believed. Okay? They had nothing to gain. Not only did they have nothing to gain by writing these accounts, they lost everything. So we can believe them to be true for those reasons. So now we know what they are. They are the redemptive historical um, stories of how God has come to save his people. They are independent, they are cohesive, and we can trust them, okay? That's what we have in these four gospel accounts. Now, zeroing in, zooming lens now onto Mark in particular, the authorship and the date. Here's what's interesting about these four gospel accounts. Not a single one of them uh, named themselves as the author. So if you're looking at Mark, Matthew, John, whatever, you're looking at these accounts, none of them say, I wrote this, my name is. Okay? They, they don't say that. Now, um, the reason is they want it to be all about Jesus. They're, they're not concerned with signing their name at the bottom of this account because the whole account is about Jesus. But what we do have is early church history. We have the church fathers, and we have internal evidence that lets us know um, verifiably who wrote uh, these books. And so very early on, the early church fathers identify Mark as being the author of this. The best date that we have for the gospel of Mark is between 50 and 60 AD, so not long after uh, Jesus has died. The Gospel of Mark in particular, this is a fast-paced, hard-hitting book. 
In Mark, there is no genealogy of Jesus, no miraculous birth narrative, no shepherds, no wise men, no childhood accounts of him in the temple. There's no sermon on the mount, and there are very few parables. Mark jumps right in at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus uh, by speaking of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, and bam, Jesus is on the scene ministering. In this book, listen, Mark uses the word immediately 42 times. Immediately, they got on the boat. Immediately, he healed the guy. Immediately, they went over here. Immediately, they went over there. And if 42 does not sound like a lot to you, in the entirety of the rest of the New Testament, the word immediately is used 12 times. All the New Testament, 12 times. In Mark's gospel alone, 42 times. Here's what you have to understand about the gospel of Mark. It is written to be read aloud. In first century Palestine and, and basically all throughout the first century, you really have only about 10% of people who can read. Okay? Only 10% of people can read. And so as they gather together as the church, what they would do is they would get these letters from the apostles and they would read them publicly. Um, now, I did this several times this week. It takes you about an hour and some change to read all the way through Mark. I encourage you to do that several times as we study this book together. But they would gather together as a church and, and the, the elder, the pastor, whoever would get up there and they would take this gospel account and they'd say, all right, here we go. Gospel of Mark, y'all settle in. And, and he would just read the whole thing. And so there's a sense of the reason that Mark is doing this in a very fast pace, immediately this, immediately that. Then they went here. The gospel of Mark is the shortest account out of all of them. The reason he's doing that is so that people can actually sit and listen to the whole thing uh, being, being read aloud. The audience who is hearing the gospel of Mark uh, would have been Roman Gentiles, okay? This is why um, oftentimes Mark will stop as, he is, um, as he's explaining something. If he comes across something that's distinctly Jewish or uh, he uses a phrase that is Aramaic, he will stop and give the um, explanation of what he's talking about because it's going to a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience. Here's an example. When Jesus goes to heal Jairus' daughter, Jesus says to the daughter, Talitha kumi, which is Aramaic for daughter or little girl, rise up or stand up. And so as Mark tells this story, he says what Jesus says, Talitha kumi, and then he says, which means little girl, rise up. He says, which means little girl, rise up, because he's communicating to a Gentile audience who didn't know that's what that meant, okay? So that's the author. The author is Mark. The best date we have is around 50 or 60 AD. It's a very fast-paced book, and the audience is for Gentiles, okay? The reason this book is fantastic for us to go through is because we are Gentiles, okay? <laughs> Not many of us in the room, if any of us come from a Jewish background, uh, and so that's why this gospel account is so great for us to go through. Now, in our remaining time, if you are still awake and still with me, uh, we are going to travel through Acts and take a close look at this guy named John Mark. Is that okay? Are you guys still with me? Got a little energy left? Or you're all done? Little left. Okay, we got a little left. I'll, uh, I'll hurry us through till the end. I want to take a look at this guy named John Mark, who is the author 
um, of this gospel account. And uh, finding John Mark is a bit like finding where's Waldo, you know? Uh, He kind of pops up over here a little bit, then you don't see him. He pops up over here, then he's gone. And so let's take a look and just follow uh, the life as as we have it here in the scriptures of this guy named John Mark. It'll help us understand um, a, a lot about how he's writing and what he's writing and, and why. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, what, what we're doing, we're just, we're diving right in the middle of the book of Acts. We, we traveled through the book of Acts uh, a little while back, so hopefully I won't have to give too much backstory here. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. At this point, Peter has been arrested. Um, he is in the jail Uh, The angel shows up. You guys remember this story? The angel shows up, breaks Peter out of jail. Uh, Peter gets out of jail and he goes to uh, the house where the Christians were gathered. And this is the very first time we're introduced to this guy named John Mark. It's, it's when Peter shows up. It's an interesting story. They're, They're all praying that Peter would get released from jail. Peter gets released from jail. He shows up to the house, knocks on the door, and nobody believes it's him right? So much for the power of prayer, I guess. Um, So they're praying for Peter to get released. He gets released. He shows up, knocks on the door. The servant girl, Rhoda, comes and and she freaks out. Hey, Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door. And they're like, no, it's not Peter. It's an angel. It's a ghost, whatever. You don't know what you're talking about. Come to find out it really is Peter and he's out of jail. What we see, the house that he goes to is this lady's house named Mary. Now, if you don't know this, uh, in first century Palestine, everybody's name is Mary, okay? That's why it's so confusing a lot of times as we read the gospel accounts because, you know, Mary said this and Mary said, it's like, well, which one is it? You know, we don't know which Mary it is because it was such a common name. So because it's such a common name, they have to figure out how they're going to differentiate this Mary from all the other Marys. And how they do that here is by saying it's John Mark's mom, okay? So this is the first time that we're introduced to him. We're not introduced to him as the mighty and powerful John Mark, the evangelist, the preacher, the miracle worker, the prophet, the sage. He is only mentioned so that we can know who his mom is. Now, the story continues on in Acts chapter 12, uh, down towards the bottom in uh, verse 25. Listen to this. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here we see John Mark, and and who is he and what is he doing? Well, these two great, powerful preachers, prophets, evangelists, Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, he's their helper. He's, He's calling ahead and making sure there's room and lodging and food for them so they can come into town and preach. He's, he's holding the scrolls as they read, right? He's, he's getting them water so they don't get dehydrated. He's, he's making sure that everything take, is taken care of. He's, he's just a helper. I mean, right here we, we see in the church, there were prophets and teachers, right? In, um, in chapter 13 in Acts, there, there were prophets and teachers. Well, Mark isn't either one of those. John Mark, I mean, he's, 
he's a nobody. He's just a helper. He's just tagging along to, to help out and make sure things run smoothly. He's just a nobody. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, there's a turn for the worse. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Here's what you need to know about John Mark. John Mark was a deserter. As he went in to go alongside these two mighty preachers, these two mighty evangelists, these two powerful church planters, he couldn't cut it. He deserted the mission. He's there with them. They're counting on him to set up travel arrangements. They're counting on him to be there to be their helper, and he couldn't cut it, and he left. He quit. He deserted, and he walked away. And this was a very big deal, so much so that in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 uh, through 40, it caused a massive rift. Listen to this. And after some days, Paul and Barnabas said, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take him with him because he had withdrawn from them at Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having committed by the brothers the grace of the Lord. He didn't go to the work. He quit. He threw in the towel. He was a deserter. He left. He couldn't cut it. And so as they went back to go around and visit those churches, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas is saying, hey man, we got to take John Mark with us. And Paul's saying, no, he's a quitter. He's a deserter. He's going to defame the name of Christ. I don't want him to come with us. And Barnabas is saying, hey man, give him a second chance. Where's the grace? Where's the love? What are we going to do? And these guys end up arguing. There's a big you know, disagreement and they go their separate ways. I mean, this guy not only was a deserter, but, but he created this division between these two brothers in Christ. Let me ask you, family, have you ever walked away from something that the Lord wanted you to do? Have you ever said, that's too much, that's too hard, I can't cut it, I can't do it? Maybe you signed up to volunteer in a ministry, but then weeks later you find yourself not showing up to the meetings, not confirming on planning center, not that any of you guys would do that not confirming on planning center, not showing up. You said, you know what? I'm gonna make a commitment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start going to church. And, and you show up a few Sundays, you know, but one Saturday night, you end up staying up too late. And so you sleep in one Sunday and you miss another one. And as time goes on, you just, you stop going altogether and you just like John Mark end up being a deserter. Friends, I've been a deserter more times than I can remember. Deserting Christ, his work, his mission, the great call that he's placed on my life. I've been a deserter more times than I can remember. And I think if you're honest, you're the same way. Here's the beautiful part of John Mark's story. Even though he was a deserter, by God's grace, he becomes a restored deserter. Colossians 4.10, listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. 
And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. From Acts chapter 15, okay, when there's that big disagreement and they go their separate ways, John Mark is essentially silent for about 10 years in the biblical record. We don't see him. We don't know what happens to him. We don't know where he goes, what he does. But here's what we do know. By God's grace, he is restored. He's, he's not just a deserter. He's a restored deserter, so much so that the relationship between him and the Apostle Paul is mended back together. And so here's the Apostle Paul, and he's saying, he, concerning who received him, welcome him. Don't, but before, he didn't even want to travel with him. Now he's saying, hey, if he comes to you, if John Mark comes to you, welcome him. You, you, you gotta welcome him. Listen to this in 2 Timothy 4, 11. This is right before Paul is, is killed, before he has his head chopped off and, and, and he's dead. This is right before Paul dies. Listen to what he says to Timothy. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. There, there's the apostle Paul right before he dies and what he wants is for, for Timothy to bring Mark to him because because he is not just a deserter, he is a restored deserter. We know that um, where Mark gets his eyewitness account is from Peter, and so he ends up spending a lot of time with Peter in Rome. Listen to this, 1 Peter 5, 13. She who is at Babylon, that, that's uh, the way Peter is writing here, it's code word for Rome, because he's in Rome. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you a greeting, and so does Mark, my son. This is his his son in the faith. And so this deserter, this guy who totally walked away from Christ, walked away from the Lord, walked away from the mission of God, is restored. And he becomes useful in the ministry to the Apostle Paul. He, so much so that he starts spending time with Peter and, and Peter's telling him all the stories and, and Mark starts writing them down. And, and this restored deserter, God chooses and God uses to write the very redemptive history, which is the salvation of our souls. This is, this is an incredible grace of God that he would use a deserter. I mean, think about Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector meaning he was a traitor to his own people. Mark, a deserter. John, totally brash. Remember that, remember that uh, story when uh, it was the Samaritans who wouldn't welcome Jesus? And John says, hey, Jesus, you want to call down fire and burn these people? <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, no, I don't want to do that. What does that say about John? It, it, it says he's uncaring. He, he's uncaring, he's brash, he's, he's harsh. And there's Luke. Luke wasn't even a Jewish guy. He's an outsider. So what we have is a traitor, an outsider, a deserter, and a guy who's uncaring. And God chooses and uses all of those men by his power, by his grace, to write these amazing gospel accounts. Amen. Guys, that, you stop and you think, man, Why? Why would God choose the losers? Why would he choose the deserters? Why would he choose the sinners? Listen, friends, because that's all he has to choose from. That's you, that's me. And God uses and he chooses sinners, deserters, outsiders, 
people who are uncaring, people who are brash, people who are rough around the edges. God chooses the lowly things of the world to shame the wise. God loves to take broken people and create beautiful masterpieces that end up blessing other people. So today, though we did not get to any text in Mark, we find here God's grace. We see here this beautiful picture of God choosing to use and love and elevate this deserter to restore him and use John Mark to leave us and give us this amazing gospel account which God himself preserved and restored over the ages so that we could have it to study together. Sinful, unqualified people is the only type of people God has to choose from. Praise be to our God for using such lowly, deserter sinners to do his mighty work. If you're here this morning, listen, God has grace for you. If you've been a deserter, if you've if you've walked away from his mission, if you've walked away from what God has for you, God has grace for you. If you totally blew it this week, I mean, just wrecked it this week, guess what? God has grace for you. Not only does he have grace to forgive you, but he also has a mission for you to get back on and in. God didn't just forgive Mark. He did. He forgave Mark for, for deserting the work. But what he also did is he put him back to the work. And so God has grace for you this morning to forgive you if you've deserted him, if you've walked away from the church. God has grace for you, but he also has a mission for you to be on and to be in. That is seeing his great gospel go out to the entire world through the local church. God uses sinful people because that's all he's got to choose from. He's got grace for you and he's got a mission for you to get about. I am so excited to get into the Gospel of Mark next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for preserving this great text for us. We thank you that we have the opportunity to read it, to study it, to work it into our lives as we seek to follow you, as we seek to know you, as we seek to be about your work. Father, I pray for the deserters in the room people like me, lowly sinners who feel like they're unworthy, who feel like they have nothing to offer. Father, I just, in Jesus' name, I just want to rebuke that spirit this morning of just feeling like they have nothing to offer. God, you put your Holy Spirit in the people who are believers, and they do have something great to offer to see your kingdom advance, to bless other people, to love other people, to serve other people. Let, let the Christians here this morning who are feeling lowly, let them know through the power of your spirit, that they do have something to offer. They do have a way to bless and serve other people. Just like Mark, who was a lowly nobody. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a prophet. He, he was just a helper. But God, you used him in a mighty and powerful way. And so God, I just ask that you use the people of this church, use the members of this church, lowly though we are, deserters though we are, sinners, outsiders, outcasts and nobodies. Lord, would you use us in a mighty way to see more people come to the knowledge of your saving grace, to see more broken families mended, to see more people with addictions set free. Would you use us in these mighty and powerful ways? I ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.